First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at the first verse. You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully mistreated at Philippi, as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition. For our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak not to please mortals, but to please God who tests our hearts. As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. You remember our labor and toil, brothers and sisters. We work night and day so that we might not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how pure, upright, and blameless our conduct was toward you believers. As you know, we dealt with each one of you like a father with his children, urging and encouraging you and pleading that you lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We also constantly give thanks to God for this, that when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as what it really is, God's word which is also at work in you believers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord, the living Savior, Jesus Christ. So I'm going to be meditating with you this morning on the primary mission of our congregation. Uh, Our mission, as stated is to lead other people to Christ, incorporating them into the life of the church and equipping one another for effective Christian living. But you can't incorporate people into the fellowship and you can't equip people for Christian living unless they're led to Christ in the first place. And that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. Our primary mission, our primary reason for being, is to lead people to Christ who don't yet know him. That's it, that's all, and that is everything. And this mission, articulated in our mission statement, is the very same as it was for Christians nearly 2,000 years ago, in spite of all the changes that have taken place in the world around us, in culture and technology. Paul, Silas, and Timothy went to Thessalonica to lead people to Christ in that Greek city. That was their mission. That was their purpose. You heard the reading. It wasn't a cakewalk. It was not easy for them. In their missionary work, they suffered for their efforts. Uh, They were often treated shamefully. They experienced opposition. And Paul even goes on to say, great opposition. 
And even so, they were faithful. They were persistent. And you and I are called to be faithful and persistent in the very same work in this mission of the church that is changeless from age to age in a changing world. One of the congregations I served before moving to Albuquerque did not have a mission statement. And back then in the 80s, most congregations did not. So we spent time praying about God's purpose for our life and witness together in that little church. And we worked on developing a mission statement. And I'll never forget, uh, his name was Al. Al was a big uh, German Lutheran. Uh, He worked for Whirlpool. And uh, he was as wide as he was tall, but don't think that I'm saying he was fat because he was strong as an ox. And he suggested at one of our first meetings that we could just go home, work done, assignment complete, because he'd been thinking and praying about it, and he knew our mission statement. God had given him a message. And everyone was like, well, Al, let's hear it. I quote, Our mission is to confront as many people as possible with the good news of Jesus Christ. We had a lively conversation. Not just that night, but for weeks. Many wondered out loud, how do you confront someone with something good? And so long before, you know, handheld devices and... um, you know, going to the internet, we, we brought our dictionaries and our Bibles to those meetings as the discussion continued. And it was uh, a woman who pointed out that in her dictionary, confront means to meet someone face to face with hostile or argumentative intent. And so over time, even Al agreed that maybe we could change that word confront to share. <laughs> We should share the good news of Jesus Christ with as many people as possible. Confronting people, think about that. Do you like to be confronted? Think about the last time you were confronted. How'd that feel? Was that nice? Did you like it? Confronting people, especially strangers who don't even know you, rarely succeeds in gaining friends or establishing a lasting positive relationship. And as we think about our mission... Um, to lead people to Christ, this good news of the Savior. Let's, let's remember um, the word evangelion in the Greek, and we translate that good news. But does that word sound familiar to you? Does it sound like something else, you know, like evangelism or to be an evangelist? You see, we are to share good news of a loving God who judged us not according to our sin, but according to his mercy and his love and his kindness. Confrontation rarely feels like good news. And we do not see the first disciples or the Apostle Paul using that in-your-face confrontation as as a means, as a tactic to further the kingdom of God. We see time and time again how they're patient, they're long-suffering. Now, they don't hold back on the proclamation. They speak the truth. They're persuasive, but they share this word lovingly with humility in order to lead people to Christ. So this morning, let's look a little more closely at our second lesson 
that letter to the church in Thessalonica, as we learn about how we might carry out our mission here at Faith, first of all, we hear from, from Paul that we are to have courage. But this courage is not something that we uh, muster up by a sheer determination, by a decision that we make unilaterally. Uh, we have courage not because of who we are, but because of who God is. Our courage is through the Lord. How many of you are old enough to remember Eddie Rickenbacker? I I grew up in a military home. My dad was an Army aviator, so I heard a lot about Eddie Rickenbacker. He was an American um, aviator, an ace in World War I, received the Medal of Honor, had 26 aerial victories in the sky. He was our most successful American fighter pilot in that great war. And then he went on to do many other notable things, race car driver, automotive designer, consultant with our military. Some of you know that he was even um, the head of the old Eastern Airlines for a while. Near the end of his life, when people asked him what it was like to go up in those planes so exposed in World War I, Rickenbacker said, courage is doing what you're afraid to do. There can be no courage unless you're scared. And he talked about the fear that was his every time he climbed into the cockpit. See, I'm not saying that sharing your faith with other people is easy. And I know some of you have told me that you get very anxious just thinking about that because you're an introvert. I'll say it again, I understand, so am I. It's God who's given me the ability to stand in front of you like this and preach a sermon. If left to my own personality and my own preferences, I'd I'd be sitting in the back row where you back row sitters always go. But God put a call on my life to be a pastor, and so I entrusted my, my ministry to him. But I'm an introvert, I get it. Other people tell me that they're afraid to share their faith with other people, not because they're introverted. I mean, some of these people are the most outgoing extroverts you'd ever want to meet. But they tell me, you know, I'm hesitant to share my faith with other people, my coworkers, my classmates, my neighbors, my friends, because they might think differently of me if they find out I'm a Christian. They might have a different attitude towards me if they find out I'm a churchgoer. And so I just ask those of you who fit into that category, if other people like you and and find you to be a friendly person they, they want to spend time with, if they treat you with affection, and you're working really hard to keep your faith to yourself, well, I ask you, do they, do they actually know the true you? Do they? Or do they approve of the persona you put out there for them? Christians around the world are sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with non-believers as we speak, and some are being persecuted for it. You know this. Homes are burned. Some are arrested, tortured, beheaded. They're not worrying about whether other people will like them or not, are they? They have courage in the Lord. 
And they know that they have responsibility because they have been entrusted by God with the message of the gospel. And so that's the second theme we hear, isn't it? From Paul in his letter to the Thessalonian Christians. God has entrusted the likes of you and the likes of me with the work of salvation in this time, in this place, in this community, in this city. It's not because of our outstanding resumes. It's because of his grace. It's because of his power. God has entrusted a broken people like you and me who know the healing power of his love to reach out with that same love to other broken, hurting people who are in darkness until they receive the light of Christ. I want to tell you a story this morning about, about trust. Uh, Paul says in the letter that he and Silas and Timothy loved the Thessalonians and treated them like a father loves children. But I know for some of you, um, red flags go up when you hear that. Here's a story of two fathers. The first took his son out back and stood him on the railing of the porch. And then he went down into the yard and standing below with the boy there, you know, hanging on for dear life. He said, now jump, jump down here. I'll catch you. And the boy said, daddy, I'm scared. I don't want to jump. And he said, jump now. Stop being a sissy. And after some loud words and some insults, the boy finally closed his eyes and took his leap. And the father stepped aside and let him fall to the ground. And the boy was sobbing and crying, and the father jerked him up and said, Dry your tears, stop your sobbing. You let that be a lesson, boy. You can't trust anybody in this life. The second father was out climbing in the mountains with his son. They stopped to eat lunch that mom had packed for their adventure. They're in the shade, sitting on the rocks, and the next thing he knows, he hears the voice of his son behind him, up on a boulder, saying, Daddy, catch! And before the father could put down his sandwich, the boy's in midair, smiling the whole way. The father catches him, falls to the ground, and says, What in the world were you thinking? Why did you do that? Can you give me one good reason? And the little boy said, Yeah, I knew you'd catch me. You're my dad. He knew his father was trustworthy. I know it's hard for many of you to even think about trust because you've had too many experiences like the first boy. People that should have cared for you and protected you did not. And you learn not to trust anyone because of all of life's hurts and disappointments. That's real, and I acknowledge it. But you need to hear that in spite of your pain and in spite of the ways that you might have felt betrayed, God loves you and God trusts you as his own. The Lord has entrusted us all, his people, with the message of holy love and perfect grace through the man of sorrows, Jesus Christ. And while others may have abandoned you or betrayed you, your Father in heaven believes that you are worth everything. You're worth dying in order to save And that's exactly what Jesus did for you on the cross. And God has entrusted us one and all with this message of life and hope and healing and freedom in Christ. And he is trustworthy. Our courage is through God. We've been entrusted by the Father. 
And when we go about this work, unlike Al back in my first church who thought that, you know, you need to confront people. We're called to share this message with, with gentleness like God. Like God. I never preach a sermon that I don't at the same time apply to my own life and discipleship. I have never challenged any of you in the pulpit or in the centrum to share your faith with other people without at the same time swallowing hard and doing my best to give that same witness. I have been working on a gentleman, a young guy, young enough to be my son at the gym where I work out for over a year. He is foul-mouthed. He is profane. He says things about women that are offensive to me as a father and a husband. And I um, confronted him. And I said, I'd really appreciate it if you wouldn't talk like that here at the gym. Why not? Who do you think you are? He said, well, I'm Bruce. Hey, I'm a husband. I'm a father of four daughters. And I find the way that you talk here offensive. It's beneath you. And he told me to mind my own business. And every time I see him at the gym, I I go over and tell him hi. And he just kind of gives me the look. And then one day, I think it was a a Wednesday, he, he said, you know, who are you? I told you my name's Bruce. No, why do, why do you even care? He said, I don't know. God put you in my path. What do you do? That's so I'm a pastor. Oh, go figures. Sorry to offend you with my manly words, pastor. And then we had a good conversation about true manliness. And anyway, let me cut to the chase. I saw that young man right after Christmas, having invited him to come here and worship with us, and he kept telling me, I got no time for church. I got no time for preachers. I got no time for religion. He came up and asked me if I'd pray for his mom, who was diagnosed with stage four cancer in December. And I said, um, you want me to pray? I, I thought you don't believe. He goes, I don't, but you do. And I'd really like to have a faith like yours. Well, my faith is anything but perfect. But by gently trying to spend time with this young man, a door has been opened. And I'm not saying that God gave his mom cancer to lead him to Christ. I don't even know if he's going to find his way to Christ yet. But I do know this. A conversation has started. And in the midst of his sorrow and in his fear and his lack of faith, he's yearning for faith. And I'll take that as a God-given opportunity to lead someone to Christ. And it's my prayer that, that he, he finds his way there. I am always looking for illustrations about the gentleness of God. You know, when I'm preparing a sermon, I'll go looking in some of my old books and I'll go online, you know, just Google, you know, gentleness like God. And you come up with all these illustrations. But I'll never forget uh, one illustration that I wasn't looking for. It caught me by surprise. And it was back when um, all my children were little. Uh, my twin daughters that are now 30 years of age were just toddlers. And we were living in, uh, in Minnesota. We had a female German shepherd by the name of Shira. I let the girls pick the name. And, and the twins, you know, just being little girls, called her Shiwa. 
Shewa. There were no mountains to climb in that part of Minnesota, but I took Shira on lots of long walks out in the open country and in the forest. And one day, I think it was October, we were out on a hike together, and that's where I could let her off leash. And as we make a turn going down this one path, uh, there coming in the opposite direction is the biggest, nastiest, gnarliest black bear I've ever seen in my life. And... Um, it goes something like, are you awake now? And the hair on my arms and on the back of my neck just, just went straight. And I froze. And I'm not even going to try to mimic the sound that came out of Shira. <laughs> but she put herself between yours truly and that bear. And I saw her snarl and let out a sound like I'd never heard before and that black bear went lower turned around and walked away I dropped to my knees and I said you're a good girl I love you I love good dog good dog and I'd like to think you know that, that she did that because she loves me so much it was probably just animal instinct right but that gnarly bear turned and just disappeared in the woods. But Shewa, that same dog that stood face to face with the bear and did not back down, later demonstrated the most tender, gentle behavior one night when we saw her delivering her 11 pups, her first litter. And like many of you who were raised on ranches and farms and got to see life and all of its beauty and all of its sorrow, um, it was a great life lesson for our children to see those little pups coming into the world and being cared for by Shira as they, they climbed all over her. You know, she had strength, she had courage, and she had, she had a gentleness about her. When we talk about gentleness, a lot of people, especially men, will get uncomfortable because gentleness is somehow... Uh, considered to be um, less than manly. You know, the gentleness, that's what moms are. But I submit to you that no one is more gentle than Almighty God, and no one is more powerful than the Lord, who humbled himself and took the form of a servant, dying on a cross that we might have life. And in that dying, and in that betrayal, and in that agony of the crucifixion, um, we're not, we're not We're not seeing a God who is somehow impotent and wimpy, uh, lacking strength. Uh, Jesus was no wimp. Could have called down an angel army to defend him if he wanted to. But he chose to fight alone on that cross and make no mistake on that cross a battle was unfolding he did battle with the power of death and the lies of the devil and they lost that cosmic struggle there is a gentleness like none other in God's love and there is a strength in the same God like no other power of this world 
So we are called to be strong in faith, to have courage in the Lord, and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with gentleness of spirit, and that does not mean that we are weak. And we do all this, finally, um, says Paul, in obedience to God. Uh, Leading people to Christ, you see, uh, if a church is to be a church, if a Christian congregation is to be Christian, uh, that's not optional. There are a lot of things that are secondary and tertiary in the life of any Christian congregation these days. There are lots of things that take place here that are edifying, that are enriching, that are good. Um, But the most important thing, the primary reason we exist, is to lead people to Christ who don't yet know him. And if we forget that, then, then I ask you, can we even call ourselves a Christian community? We might be a really awesome, voluntary association of like-minded people. But we exist to lead people to Christ. It's Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go and make disciples. That's, that's not a suggestion from Jesus. That, that's, that's an order. Some of you remember the life and the work of uh, Chuck Charles Swindoll. I read one of his books years ago when I was a much younger man called Living Above the Level of Mediocrity. And listen, um, I know this illustration is dated. I mean, this book was written before everybody had handheld devices and were messaging on Facebook and texting and Instagramming. So the illustration is dated, but, you know, so am I. I'm getting rather dated. So are some of you. But this is a story he tells. Imagine that you work for a company whose president finds it's necessary to travel out of country for an extended period of time. He says to you and all the other trusted employees, I'm going to leave, and while I'm gone, I want you to pay close attention to business. You're going to manage things while I'm away. I will communicate with you regularly. And when I do, I will instruct you what you should do now until I return from this trip and everyone agrees. He leaves and stays gone for a long time. During that time, he writes off, and you see, that's dated right there, writing a letter. Who does that anymore? And he communicates his desires from his concerns, and finally he returns, and when he walks up to the front of the the business, the building, everything's a mess. There's weeds in the flower beds. There's broken windows. The person at the front desk is dozing. There's loud music coming from several offices. There's a couple young employees messing around horseplay in the back room. And he finds out that instead of making profits, the business has suffered a great loss. And he calls everyone together and says, what happened? Didn't you get my letters? Didn't you get my instructions? And then one person says, oh yeah, we did. We got all of them. We even even made copies. And we bound them in a book for everyone to have. And some of us, in fact, have memorized parts of those letters. And and a few of us get together once a week and we read those letters. And, you know, there's some really great messages there. And then the president says, but what did you do about my instructions? And the employees kind of look at each other and one says, well, nothing. But we we read every single one. And you, you see the illustration he's making here. It's one thing to read the Bible, which we should. It's one thing to meditate on God's word, which we should. It's one thing to memorize scripture, which we should. It's another thing to apply it, to be doers of the word 
as Jesus told us, not just listeners. We tell other people about Jesus, not because it's easy, and not because it'll make us uh, the most popular or well-liked person, but we do so because this is the mind of God, and this is our assignment. German Lutheran pastor, martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of you know, had the courage to stand up to the, the evil of Nazism and was arrested. And he was in a Nazi prison camp where he was hung to death three days before Allied forces liberated the camp. And before his death, he wrote, listen to this, one act of obedience is better than 100 sermons. I think Bonhoeffer's wrong. I think one act of obedience is better than a thousand sermons. If one person worshiping today chooses to share his or her faith with someone who does not yet know Jesus, well, that's better than any sermon I've ever preached or the remaining 35 I have as your senior pastor. One act of obedience is better than a hundred sermons, said Bonhoeffer. Will you be, will you be that person? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.